Thank you, Dorothy, for reading that portion of Ruth. Let's pray together. Father, we've just sung about the, the mystery. Lord, the way that you have unfolded your plan throughout the ages. Even in ways and in people we would never notice or never see ourselves. And thank you, God, that you're still doing that. Lord, as we saw on the video, as we heard JT pray, Lord, we're in between the time of the Great Commission and that great multitude gathering before the throne. But, Lord, your plans and purposes for redemption go back to the beginning, all the way back. And we thank you for that. So, Lord, show us the threads of the gospel. Show us the character of Christ. Lord, show us um, how gracious and good, how kind you are, Lord. Uh, even as we read and, and look at this passage today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you saw in that video and as you heard this morning, we're beginning the week of prayer for international missions and we'll be taking up that offering all month. And God's plan and purposes for how he's going to reach this lost and dying world did not start in the New Testament, right? We understand that. We understand that this book, this Bible, is God's story from, Revel- from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation. It's all one book, and there's different phases of that, different chapters of that, different eras in time in that. And as we look back at the Old Testament and see God's thread moving through there, we come to this section here in Ruth, and it's one of the most beautiful stories that you will find in Scripture. Four chapters, it's just it's a beautiful picture. And what you see here is a picture of how God works in and through and for His people to bring about His purposes. And you see God calling out His purposes as He calls out individuals. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we are called to live as children of light. In the midst of a a crooked, in the midst of a dark generation. 2.15 says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Ruth and Boaz are lights in a dark world. All right? That's that's what we see beginning to be played out here in chapter 2. They are shining examples of what it means to live differently. Their character, their, their attitudes, their actions, all are different from what's going on around them. So the book of Ruth is, is exemplary for us in that aspect. But there's so much more there. There's so much more. Because this character of Ruth and Boaz and what we see being played out in these pictures is a picture of what we will see in Christ. And what we see being played out before us in this drama is this picture of God's mercy and care as it weaves its way all the way through Scripture. It's, it's just a beautiful picture. And as we saw last week, it's this, it's this linchpin. I think it's a critical part of that. And as we see Ruth come and take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel, I mean, it's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of the gospel. And so let's look at chapter 2. First, I want us to see first the providential care of God as it weaves its way through this tapestry, okay? Now, back in chapter 1, in verse 22, notice what it says there. Ruth returned, excuse me, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. And she returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. What do you know? 
The famine is over, and there's now a harvest about to be taken in from the barley and the wheat, as we'll see later on in chapter 2. And God's faithfulness and his providential care for his people, even through his discipline, is a picture that we see all the way through Scripture. God's faithfulness and care all the way through Scripture. Give you an illustration. Turn to Psalm 105 for just a minute. Psalm 105, I'm not going to take the time to read very much of it at all. It begins in verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. And then the writer goes on to just spell out for us and lay out for us God's faithfulness to his people throughout the history of Israel up until this point in time. The wondrous works he's done, his miracles and his judgments, it tells us in the first part of this psalm. But notice what it says there in verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made to Abraham and swore his promise to Isaac. Which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10 all mention the covenant of God. His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Amen? That's the picture that we see all the way through Scripture. His, his faithfulness to His promise. And His protection. It's the story of the history of Israel. And God's protection for them. It's verse 12. They were few in number, of little account. And they were sojourners, wandering from nation to nation. And is the picture of God's protection and provision for them. It says there that he, he, even though they were few in number, He had set them aside and protected them. Verse 16. He provides for them even through the bitter, the bitter circumstances of a famine. All right? Remember that story in Genesis? He summoned the famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread and sent Joseph down into Egypt as a slave. His feet were in fetters, and God then raised him up to be lord over the people of Egypt there. This is a picture of God's provision. They came into Egypt empty. They left full. They were stronger. They were more powerful. They, they had the gold of Egypt, it says down in verse 37. So here's this picture of God weaving his purposes through with his provision, his protection, the leaders that he gives in Moses. So just think about that as the background. Twice in the book of Ruth, you're going to see the Lord mentioned directly by the author. First time, the Lord gives bread. The next time we'll see, the Lord gives a baby, all right? He gives her conception. And these two bookends are this picture of the provision of God, right? Even through what would seem to be difficult circumstances. That's the whole point. This falls during the time of judges, right? There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not everyone. There are exceptions. There are quiet, faithful exceptions all the time. Of people who are living for God and not for themselves. People who are going to follow God's will and God's ways instead of doing what is right in their own eyes, right? And Ruth and Boaz are examples of that. God's provision. God makes provision, though, through his word in a way that we see in Ruth chapter 2 that's really important for us to recognize. Notice what happens. Let me flip back over here. In Ruth chapter 2... Ruth asked Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So here's this idea, this concept of gleaning. 
All right. Now, we're probably familiar with that in some way, but I want you to recognize that this idea of gleaning is a provision of God through his word, through his law. All right. Turn over to the book of Leviticus. Go back there, flip a left from Ruth. Go back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. My little heading over this section says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? How do we show Hesed love, Hesed kindness to others? Well, the way that God lays it out here in, in Leviticus says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vine bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And he says something very similar to that later on in chapter 23. Over in the book, later on over in the book of Deuteronomy, this is what he says in chapter 24. Listen to this. Chapter 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fathers, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Which of those categories does Ruth fit under? Yes, one. Yes, two. And yes, three. And so here's this provision from God through his law. Now, in the days of Judges, I think it was rare. I think it would probably be rare. Here's these Israelites. They've been in the midst of a famine. All of a sudden, we've got a harvest. And we're going to do all we can to bring it in and hoard it for ourselves. But Ruth is the beneficiary of a man who is faithful when others are not. And I think we see that being played out here. So it just so happened that this happens during the time of a harvest. And it just so happened, it tells us in the book of Ruth, that she ends up in the field of Boaz. I mean, the writer says she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And it says there next, and behold, Boaz came to the field. And, and there's an emphasis there in life. Well, behold, Boaz shows up. What do you know? He shows up on this day in this field that he owns while this woman is there. Imagine all these coincidences that are going on, right? No. God is orchestrating and moving here in amazing ways. And not only is it just Boaz, but Boaz is a member of Elimelech's family. And we'll see the significance of that next week. He is a kinsman redeemer. We'll see what that means. So if this book teaches us anything, if this Bible teaches us anything, and it does, it teaches us that God is faithful. He is sovereignly in control, moving and working, and those who have eyes of faith see it. And those who don't just see it as happenstance and circumstance and luck, but not God's people, not those with eyes of faith. The writer of Proverbs says, "Those are the plans, and there are plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. God's purposes stand, regardless of what's going on in the culture around us, regardless of what's going on in the circumstances around us. And He often protects and provides and leads in 
just mysterious ways, right? And in ways that would be often unnoticed and unseen, except that we had eyes of faith to see it. I think that's what Paul talks about, right, in Romans 8? That we know that for those who love God, all things work together, right? Some versions say God works all things together. Some versions say God in works in all things. It's, it's all the same, right? It's all the same. And throughout Ruth, we see the providential care of God. We see his care, and we also see his people. And in Ruth 2, we see the attractive character of this young lady, Ruth. All right? Now, our version of the Bible has the book of Ruth in between Judges and First and Second Samuel. And so, as I said last week, it's kind of that linchpin upon which everything turns. There is a version of the Hebrew Bible that has the book of Ruth following the book of Proverbs. Well, how does the book of Proverbs end? It ends with chapter 31. With that woman of noble character, that woman of noble virtue, that virtuous woman. And in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is an illustration of what you just read in the chapter before the story of Ruth begins. But in our Bible, as I said, she is in between. This picture that we have here is in between the book of Judges and the book of First and Second Samuel. When there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. As opposed to these two people in chapter 2 whose character is very different and whose influence is very different. And so at the book of Ruth, throughout the book of Ruth, here's what we're reminded about Ruth. She's not one of us. She's different. Six times in my Bible, she is the Moabite. Here's a woman who comes in to a country that's not hers, to a people who are not hers. She is formerly a pagan idolater. And as we saw back in chapter 1, I believe there's a picture of her conversion and what stands out then is her character, how, how her character is representative of her faith, of her worthy character. And so that contrast is important for us to see. Yes, she is a picture of that Proverbs 31 woman, but she is also a picture, as is Boaz, of someone who does not do what is right in their own eyes, but does what God would call us and lead us to do. One of the things you notice about Ruth is that she has a reputation. Yep, she's got a reputation. Dorothy read us this passage. She encounters Boaz. They begin to have this conversation. We'll come back and look at part of that. And then Boaz says this as he's talking to her. He, he talks about the reputation that she has. All that you have done for your mother-in-law... Since the death of your husband has been fully told me, he says, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Verse 13 tells us that Ruth has a reputation. Word has gotten around town of the kind of woman that she is. Well, what kind of woman is she? Well, she is a woman who has courageous determination. That came in the chapter before. This woman had made her mind up, and no one was going to change it. That beautiful picture of her commitment to Naomi's God and to Naomi herself. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall, my, shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth goes on and says, I will live and die with you, Naomi. 
And in verse 18, Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. Right. She'd made her mind up. And there's courage in that, and that courage and that determination, that word about that had made its way back to Bethlehem. Boaz had heard about that. He also heard about and saw her responsible initiative. Responsible initiative. Back at the beginning of Ruth chapter 2, she's the one that initiates. We've got to do something, Naomi. We can't sit here and wait on bread to fall out of the sky. And Ruth is the one who initiates this action. Ruth is the one who seeks permission to go and begin this process of gleaning and trying to earn and get something so that they will not starve. Isn't it interesting that Naomi had come back and said, don't call me sweetie pie, right? I mean, that's what Naomi means, sweet. Don't call me that, call me bitter. The Lord sent me away, and she says, he's brought me back empty. No, Naomi, you've got Ruth. You're not empty. You've got a daughter-in-law that loves the Lord and loves you. You've got a daughter-in-law that has received the Hesed, the covenant, kindness of God, and she wants to extend that to you now? No, Naomi, you are not empty. There's a responsible initiative on Ruth's part. There's also humble dependence. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. What Ruth is saying there, let me go glean from whoever will give me permission. Whoever will extend to me the opportunity to do this. Let me go there and take advantage of their hospitality. Let me go there and take advantage of that. In verse 7, she had said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So there is a humble dependence. Ruth does not expect anything. She's not one of these who says, I deserve this. And she also recognizes that I can't do this alone. So there's humility and there's a dependence there. That are exemplary for us, all of us. There is also a strong work ethic. You see what she said there? She came, and she's just not a lazy woman. And as the workman there is reporting to Boaz, she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. It says down in verse 17 that she gleaned in the field until evening. It says down in verse 23 that she did this for the entire harvest which would have been a period of time from anywhere from 12 weeks to maybe two months. So this woman is a hard worker. There's a work ethic here that's exemplary for us. And there is humble gratitude. In verse 10, when Boaz comes and welcomes her into the field and she's given permission to do that, Boaz come and extends to her just this amazing hospitality and kindness. In verse 10, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Later on, it says down in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. There is humble gratitude. Ladies, what does the world tell you? You need to look like or be like to be the kind of woman that the culture would tell you you need to be. Well, let me suggest to you that what you find here is your model. Ruth had a reputation. She had a reputation for courage and determination and care and initiative and humility 
and hard work. She had a reputation for being grateful. And don't think for one second that's not attractive. We're going to see it was attractive to Boaz. Her worthy character. I use that word intentionally even as we look next at Boaz. From the perspective of social standing, these two people could not have been more different, right? Do we understand that? Boaz is an Israelite. He is from an upstanding family. He is a leader in the Bethlehem community. He is wealthy. He has prestige. He has power. He has possessions. And the text tells us in the beginning of chapter 2 that he is a worthy man. Ruth, she's a widow. She's poor. She's a foreigner. And not only is she just a foreigner, she's a foreigner from Moab. She's a Moabite. That makes it even worse. Everything that Boaz has and represents, she doesn't have. And everything that Boaz has and represents, Naomi has lost. So there couldn't be a greater contrast there. And yet, they share something in common. They are both called worthy. Boaz is called worthy in the beginning of chapter 2. He refers to Ruth as worthy in chapter 3, as we'll see next week. And the word worthy there is significant. Now, worthy can mean strong. It can mean powerful. It can mean something of a warrior. Worthy or, or powerful in that regard is, is a word that's used in the Old Testament sometimes refer to one of Israel's enemies. But here in this context, because it refers to Boaz and to Ruth, I think a better understanding of it is it refers to someone that's virtuous, strong, excellent in their character, okay? Someone who is, someone who is noble. And Ruth and Boaz are both referred to as worthy. But the word is used directly in chapter 2 for Boaz, so we're going to think about that for just a second. Here's the illustration. Here's what came to mind as I started to think about Boaz. Turn to Psalms 37. I love Psalm 37. It's, it's, God has used it to minister to me personally in so many ways over the years. I've used it in counseling and helping others work through difficult situations. And most of those difficult situations come when that person finds themselves at the end as the recipient, if you will, from, from some kind of evil, some kind of sin, some kind of ill purposes for some, in one way or another. In fact, the psalm begins, fret not yourself because of evildoers or be envious of wrongdoers. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The context is being surrounded by evildoers and those who do what is contrary to God, and they seem to be blessed in it. They seem to prosper in it. And Psalm 37 is for God's people who look at that and go, what in the world? Boaz is an illustration of what we see in these next four verses. Psalm 37, 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. I first memorized this verse in the NIV, and it says there, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Boaz, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and be faithful. And see if God then doesn't begin to give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust Him, even when the world around you is going contrary to that. And He will bring forth your righteousness, Boaz, so that it will be seen as bright as the noonday sun. And that's exactly what we see happening here on the pages of Ruth, here in Ruth chapter 2. Boaz is a worthy man. Boaz is a godly man. And you can see that, I believe, from something as simple as a greeting. Boaz shows up at this field that he owns, and he's got all these people working there that he's hired. Boaz came to the field, it says, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Why would the writer feel like it's important that we see how Boaz greeted those who worked for him? Here's what I think. We're all godly on Sunday mornings from 1030 to 12. His name's on our lips. His praises are in our songs. And we say amen to the prayers that we hear, even if we're not praying them ourselves. Guys, that's really not that impressive. Not really. Not unless that same praise, that same name of Christ, is on your lips Monday morning when you go to work. And when you greet those who work with you or for you. Boaz is a man of faith. He is a godly man that has worked that godliness all the way into his employment, all the way into his place of work, and filtered down all the way to those who work for him. So that's, I see that godliness in that. But there's something else going on in the life of Boaz that we might miss that I think is absolutely significant. Boaz is a kingdom man. By kingdom man, I'm thinking about what we saw in the video a few minutes ago. When we see those images and when we see those numbers about people lost in their sin all across the globe. And we don't really see people from a different race necessarily. We don't really see people from a different culture. Or we don't really see people that are dressed weird, but we see souls. Souls of men and women that are lost apart from Christ. And see them as carrying the Imago Dei, the image of God. That's what I think about when I think about kingdom men and women. Boaz has a heart for God's kingdom and he has a heart for God. And because he has a heart for God, he sees people differently than those around him might see them. And I believe one of the reasons Boaz has this heart for people is because it was in his family tree. It's part of how he was raised. All right. Now. Boaz is the son of Salmon, it tells us at the end of Ruth. Over in the book of Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 5, we read, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, and on it goes. So there's disagreement among the scholars as to whether or not Rahab was actually his mother, maybe his grandmother, sometimes in, Christian, sometimes in biblical genealogies, a generation is skipped for the purpose of what the writer is trying to demonstrate. Regardless of that, there are five women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, very rare in a biblical genealogy. The first three of them are Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And when we think about Rahab, we think about the children of Israel coming in and taking Jericho. And we think about a prostitute who lived there, who received the spies of Israel and hid them. And because she hid them as spies, 
She was rescued, if you will. She was delivered. She was not one of those devoted to destruction or killed by the Israelites. Rahab herself says in Joshua chapter 2, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And we have heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And here's what, here's what Ruth, here's what Rahab said. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab got it. And because she hid the spies and because she was kind to the Israelites, they were kind to her. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, Joshua said in Joshua chapter 6. Now Boaz, whether, whether she's his mother, grandmother, or great-grandmother, in a culture where education is by story, education is by historical verbal recounting, Boaz knew about this woman. Boaz knew about her faith. He knew about her courage. He knew about her determination. He knew about her being an outsider. He knew about her being received into a people who were not her own. And here he stands in his field in front of Ruth. Wow, what a coincidence. Right? No. No. God has been at work in his family and now he's at work in his heart. Our kids learn to love or hate from their parents. Our kids learn to value and respect or to use and abuse from us. Thank God that Boaz had gotten good lessons from his mom or his grandmother or his great-grandmother. And Ruth is the beneficiary of that. Boaz is a kingdom man. And he is also a kind man. You can recount this in chapter 2. And there's, there's these statements that come from Boaz, starting there in verse 8. And they just kind of continue to roll off. Listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on this field and on those who are reaping and follow them, he says. He says, I've charged my young men not to touch you. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So here he is. Don't go anyplace else. Follow after my employees. Stay in my field. I've instructed my men to not touch you. In fact, later on, he says not only not to touch, but to not reproach you. And the idea there is to jeer at her or to speak lewdly to her or to say things to her or about her that are off color. Why would they be tempted to do that? I think there's a hint to that. Even in his conversation with the man who is in charge of his reapers. And you don't see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, and commentators have pointed this out to me. It says in verse 6, the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered Boaz. When Boaz said, whose woman is this? Who is this woman? He said, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Why does he need twice in one sentence to say she's from Moab? Why does he need to say twice she's a Moabite from Moab? Well, commentators say that there's in that repetition and in that phraseology disdain 
disrespect. And Boaz stands in clear contrast to that racial joke that he just heard. Boaz isn't laughing when someone says that was just the way I was raised. Boaz is different because Boaz sees people differently. His kindnesses and his compassion just leap off the page, as does his generosity. Boaz is a generous man. He, he, he invites her to come and eat alongside them, it tells us there. He instructs his men and how they're to provide for her and go above and beyond just simply letting her come along and pick up what's left over. It tells us that after she has threshed out, this is hard work, by the way, all right? I don't know how familiar you are with a grain of barley or with, a, with you know, a stalk of wheat, but all the fruit is up there on the end. And so they go through and they cut it all off by hand and they gather it by hand. There's not any combines here in this picture, right? And so here's Ruth coming along, picking up what is left, sometimes with one stalk at a time, sometimes a handful at a time. And at the end of the day, they go to the threshing floor and she beats it out on the hard floor. And the heads of grain stay there. The chaff blows away and she's left with a stalk in her hand. And, she, and then she gathers all that up. Well, she did that at the end of the day. After Boaz had made clear distinction and, and been generous with her, leave bundles for her. Leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her, it says in verse 16. And because of his generosity, it says that she ends up with an ephah, of grain, which, based on what I've read, is like five and a half gallons. A five-gallon bucket of grain would weigh somewhere around 35 pounds. This woman's pretty strong, besides everything else that's going on for her. And so she gleans this out. She ends up with about five and a half gallons of grain. I did a little research there, all right, just, just out of my curiosity. How much grain, if you grind it up for whole wheat bread, goes into a loaf of bread? Well, depending on your recipe, depending on the size of your loaf, probably somewhere two and a half, three cups. How many cups are in five and a half gallons of grain? Glad you asked. About 75. How much will that make? About 25 loaves. She had a good day. There's enough that she gathered in this one day for her and Naomi to go well for a week, maybe two weeks. And she did that for the whole season. And if you carry that out, they were taken care of for a year, maybe, because of the generosity of this godly, generous, kind man. Boaz is that kind of guy. But there is something else going on in this. Look at what it says there in verses 10 and 12. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground at this amazing generosity, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? In verse 11, Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Verse 12, The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The saving mercy of God under his wings of refuge, is the center point of this chapter. And his redemption that comes through his provision through Christ is the center point of the whole book. We'll see that. 
But in the scripture, when you see this word wings, and you will see it often, according to the the version that I was studying through, you find the word wings in the Old Testament somewhere between 110 and 115 times. All of those, with the exception of about 10, refer to God, not to a bird. Okay? So we're not just talking about a bird here. Wings is one of God's provisions for us through language, a metaphor that describes what he's like when we in our frail minds can't comprehend him. And when we in our horizontal, earth-laden perspective can't understand what an eternal God is like and how he relates to us. Thank God that he gives us these pictures of body parts that really he doesn't have. But they give us a picture of what he's like, right? And so wings, you've taken refuge under the wings of the Lord of Israel, of the God of Israel, Boaz says. So throughout the, throughout the scriptures, wings are primarily a picture of God's provision, his protection, his shelter, his mercy. Psalm 36, listen to this, Psalm 36 verse 7 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life and your light in your light do we see. So in the wing, under the wings of God's refuge is his provision and his protection. But also wings are a picture in the Old Testament of God's judgment. I don't, you don't need to turn there for the sake of time, but just listen to Jeremiah chapter 48. In verse 40, the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. The city shall be taken and strongholds shall be seized. The heart of the warriors of Moab shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. Moab shall be destroyed and be no longer a people. Because he magnified himself against the Lord. Terror, pit, and snares are before you, O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. Here's the deal. Under God's wings, you'll be blessed with refuge and protection. Or under his wings, you will be judged and destroyed. This Moabite woman is under his wing. And she's there under the wings of refuge and protection. She is not being paid for what she did. I think it's important for us to note that. The wording could lead us to believe that that might be the case. Boaz said, all that you've done has been told to me. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord. Is Boaz saying, Ruth, because of what you've done, God is rewarding you. Because of what you've done, God is blessing you. I don't think that's what he's saying. And I think we see that really clearly when he says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. One commentator put it this way. The picture is of God as a great winged eagle. And Ruth as a threatened little eaglet coming to find safety under the eagle's wings. Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of God. And there she found more than she could ever imagine. Right? And so she is not being paid by God. God doesn't pay us. 
She is not being rewarded by God for something she's done to somebody else. There's a connection between those two, but it's not quid quo pro. All right. She hasn't brought anything that God needed so that God needs to pay her. She has sought refuge under God's wings and under those wings in that place of refuge. It is a place of provision and protection and blessing and generosity beyond anything we can imagine. And that's what we see being lived out before us here. Yeah, Boaz is generous because his God is generous. Boaz, as we will see, is a redeemer. And it points us to Christ, our redeemer. Boaz sees Ruth not as a woman to be taken advantage of, to be jeered at, leered at. He sees her as someone in the image of God who is to be cared for, who's to be extended hospitality, who's to be extended justice and to be treated the way she ought to be treated. The text, the the chapter wraps up, and I'll get into this next week. Ruth comes back home with all that she's gathered, and Naomi, (laughs) boy, is this ever an, an understatement. Like, where in the world have you been? All right. She gleaned that field. She brought it all home. She took it and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out and gave her the food that was left over. All right. Boaz gave her lunch and a to-go plate. And she brought that home to Naomi. And her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man that took notice of you. (laughs) Yes. And she told her mother-in-law where she'd worked. And with whom she had worked. The man's name was Boaz. And I can just see Naomi's eyes light up. And we could hear it in the background. Oh, Boaz. Hmm. You need to stay close to him. You need to hang tight with his people. Because he's one of us. We'll see that later on. I I love that. Let me just give you some points of application for what we've seen in in this chapter. All right, here's the first thing. I want us to to be able to see our life, all of our life, all right, all of our life through eyes of faith and be thankful for it. That's that's the umbrella I see over this whole chapter. Much of what we see happening in chapter 2 could easily be attributed by the world to luck. To circumstance. Well, what do you know? She just ended up in that field. And what do you know? He just ended up in that field. And what do you know? He just happens to be a part of this family. And what do you know? And what do you know? What do I know? I know the sovereign God over all of this who is orchestrating and moving it. Every single hair on my head he knows of, right? And church, we're called to walk by faith and perceive by faith. And to see our lives in that way. The bitter and the sweet. The bitter and the sweet. Because the bitterness is being used by God for good. So how do you see the providential hand of God in your life? And let me tell you, parents, when you see that providential hand of God, be like Psalm 105 and tell your children. Tell others. Sit around and tell those stories of faith. See your life through eyes of faith. Secondly, this is pretty straightforward in my mind. Be like Ruth or be like Boaz, men. Just their, their character is exemplary in so many ways. 
And what we see in that character, I believe, from a New Testament perspective, is what really is expected to come forth from the fruit of that tree rooted in Christ. Paul calls it spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's exemplary in the book of Ruth in the days of Judges when everyone else did what was right in their own eyes. And believe you me, it's exemplary today in our day of darkness when everyone does what is right in his own eyes and governs his own heart. So women, be like Ruth. Young girls, be like Ruth. You'll build a reputation. And it'll be attractive. And it'll honor God. And as you dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness, He will give you the desires of your heart. And men, be like Boaz. Specifically, there's an application for us as men. Men, if we know Christ as our Savior and as our refuge, we should be intent and focused on seeing that women are given that safety and that protection and that refuge that we have received. That was what was so distinctive about Boaz in his day. Even in his own field, that was distinctive about him. I was reading this week, throughout the world, women and girls, I'm reading from a report, are being abused. And you don't need me to stand up here and tell you that. The the statistics are staggering. In the case of human trafficking, 70% of those trafficked into servitude are women and girls. 99% of those in sex slavery are women and girls. 250 million girls are forced into child marriage. And one in three girls in the church and out have experienced physical and or sexual violence in their lifetime. Men, we have a shepherd of our souls who calls us to shepherd and care for, as he does. That should be what marks us as men. We live in a day, I don't have to describe it to you, right? Where women are TikToked, videoed, devalued, marginalized. I could go on. Men, boys, be Boaz. Be Boaz. Church, does Hesed, love, and kindness mark us? Ruth and Boaz are recipients of God's covenant kindness, His Hesed love. It weaves its way throughout the Bible and especially here in Ruth. And so how do we in our lives as, as Christians, how do we in this church, in our homes, in our marriages, and in our workplaces, exhibit that same kind of hesed kindness and generosity and openness to, to people around us? I quoted, I posted an article earlier this week. It was an op-ed piece from Tim Keller in the New York Times the day before yesterday. About The title of it is, What Too Little Forgiveness Does to Us. And Keller talks about the lack of forgiveness in our culture today. And he says the Christian church today is not the model of forgiveness that it was at times in the past. God uses kindness, he says, to lead people's hearts to change. 
But taken as a whole today, America's church does not. Christians, he says, like me, should repent and renew themselves as members of communities of forgiveness and reconciliation. I would just add as communities of hesed kindness. And finally, in Ruth and Boaz, we see the character of Christ. So my last question is, where are you taking refuge? Where are you seeking protection? Where are you seeking value? Where are you seeking acceptance? Where are you seeking? What is your place of refuge? And there's a clear contrast in Ruth between emptiness and fullness, right? There's a clear contrast between famine and plenty, between hunger and satisfaction. And the only place you're going to find satisfaction is in Jesus. Come to Him today. Come to Him today, okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this picture of covenant faithfulness and Christ-like character. Thank You for providing for us a place of refuge under the wings of Jesus, our, our Redeemer and our King. And Father, I pray that we would be marked as a church and as individuals and as a family, Lord, by that covenant faithfulness, by that compassion, by that Christ-like character. God, thank You that You are orchestrating our lives and You are working all things together for good to those that love You and are called according to Your purpose. Help us rest in that and help us, Lord, live in the reality of that in such a way that the world around us takes notice of it. Father, raise up from within this church, I pray. Make us all points of light in the middle of a dark and crooked generation. All for Your glory. All for your glory, Lord. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be down front to pray with you, receive you, minister to you any way as I can as we sing this song. And